Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Nehemiah chapter 4, in the Old Testament, you've got the one and two books, and then you've got the e-book, the first ever e-book. you get that in a minute. And then Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, for those who may be joining us for the first time in this series, we have been in a series uh, where we've studied the, uh, the book of Nehemiah on Sunday mornings. This is our fourth study in the book. If you would like to go back and, and catch up or with the other three, you can go to our website, fellowshipfamily.org, or you could uh, subscribe to our uh, podcast. Either, either way, you can get those automatically uh, on your device there. But if you're in Nehemiah chapter 4, I, I want to direct your attention um, to one verse in particular to begin with and kind of set the stage for the message today. And as you can see, that's verse 10. And Judah said, note that name, and Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. And there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. The strength of the bearers of burdens is decay. To give you a little context, the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down, the city had been burned It had existed in that condition for over 140 years by the time we get to the book of Nehemiah. And in a providential act of God, Nehemiah is commissioned by King Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem to look at the situation and to begin the rebuilding of the walls and the restoration of the city. And so they have been working hard. This is a two-mile wall, some 15 to 20 feet high, some four to five feet thick. This is a huge project. And no doubt, no doubt, Physically speaking, those who were involved in the work were weary. I think we could all probably agree with that. But beyond that, I believe that it's safe to say, and I think you'll agree with me as we get into the the story today, that not only were they weary physically, But I would submit to you this morning that they were weary in their spirits. That they were discouraged. And with the Lord's help, I want to address the topic of discouragement. And if I were to give the message a title today, it would simply be this. Down, but not out. There's not a person here who at some point has not been discouraged. 
To be discouraged simply means to be deprived of courage. It means to be deprived of hope, to be deprived of confidence. Associated words would include disheartened, hopeless, despair. Discouragement can be debilitating. It can cause you to give up trying. It can cause you to give up hoping, to give up caring. And listen, it can happen to the best of us. I ask you to note the the name there, and Judah said. Judah was like the cream of the crop when it came to the 12 tribes of Israel. As we sung a moment ago, Jesus is said to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The word Judah actually means praise. But now Judah and the others, they have no praise. They have lost strength. And and they were losing hope. And they were feeling as though they just couldn't go on. Have you ever been there? If you've dieted, you've been discouraged. Come on now. Man, you you almost starve yourself to death for weeks, and you get on the scale expecting one number, and you see another number. (sighs) What's the use? You're a student. You've studied and studied and studied. You're expecting to make a good grade, if not ace the exam. And you take and you get your paper back. And it's far from what you expected. Why did I stay up all night studying? Well, probably because you didn't study the, <laughs> the days leading up to it would be my guess. But if you've ever exercised... You ever ran on a treadmill or been on an elliptical or an air bike? You've probably been at least mildly discouraged. I mean, you're, you're, you're moving along and you're hustling and you're working and you're sweating and you're panting and you're dying. And you think, man, I probably got five miles in. And you look down and it's a measly mile and a half. That's discouraging. All of us on some level at some time have been deprived of courage and hope and confidence. When we last left Nehemiah and and those he was leading, they had found, every one of them had found their place around the wall. They had plugged into what they could do and they were building and they were working side by side and shoulder to shoulder and and one of the things that we learned that was I I believe so important and instructive for us last week is this and and we we talked about it in the context of local church ministry no one can do everything but everyone can do something 
Because everybody is somebody in the body. So let's pick up with Nehemiah chapter 4 at the beginning. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. Look at it, took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Now this is actually the third time Sanballat appears in the narrative of Nehemiah, even though this is the first time that we'll take note of it, because I knew we were going to get here. And let me just say this at the outset, Sanballat is not a good guy. He is not a friend of the Jews. The first time we read of him is in chapter 2, and, and he's not happy that Nehemiah had even showed up. He wasn't happy that Nehemiah was seeking to repair the walls and rebuild the city, and the reason he was disappointed was because as long as the walls around Jerusalem were down and, and the city was unprotected, then the Jews were powerless. But Sanballat and his buddies knew that if they ever got those walls up and if they ever got the city rebuilt, then the Jews would once again be a threat to be reckoned with. The second time his name is mentioned, he's scorning the Jews and the the other workers and he's laughing at them for thinking that they could make a difference. And now here in our text, he is once again mocking making fun of the people of God. But this time it says he's very angry and filled with great indignation. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. And look at verse 8. They conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem. And notice those last four words. And to hinder it. So that brings us to our first teaching point this morning, which is simply this. Every advance will suffer attack. Every advance will suffer attack. When the Jews started uh, uh, rebuilding the walls and reclaiming their identity and restoring their worship and began reemerging as a threat to the power of status and uh, uh, to the power and status of Sanballat, he rose up. He said, I'm not going to have this. I can't have this. Something must be done. We've got to do something to hinder their progress. And by the same token, every time, listen, every time you decide in your spiritual life to revive or rebuild or renew something and to go forward in your walk with God, mark it down, Satan is going to do everything he can to keep that from happening. Every time you decide you're going to read your Bible and pray every day, you're going to meet with opposition. Every time you decide that, that you're going to start consistently honoring God with your tithes and offerings, I promise you, you will meet with opposition. 
Every time you purpose in your heart to make Sunday and Wednesday night church a priority, the devil will make sure that it's not easy to do. Why? Because he knows if you start making forward progress in your life as a believer, then he's going to be in trouble. And he's not going to stand for it. He's not going to tolerate it. Now, there are are any number of ways that the devil may come at you. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. When we see that word devices, we might think of it as the devil's designs or the devil's schemes. If you're a sports person, you've heard broadcasters and commentators talk about a team's defensive scheme. We're leading up to the Super Bowl, and and there'll be a lot of talk about the Chiefs' defensive scheme and the 49ers' defensive scheme. And what they're talking about is, is, is those teams' plans to stop the advances of the opposition's offense. We might explain it like this. If you're a carpenter, then then you know that there are certain tools for certain jobs. If you're a fisherman, you know that they make certain lures for certain types of fish. And here's the point that I'm making this morning. Satan knows how to attack each of us. What might discourage you may not discourage me. And what may discourage me may not discourage you. But here's the deal. Satan knows which is which. He knows how to discourage me. He knows how to discourage you. And he will use exactly what it takes to do everything he can. He has a cleverly crafted scheme designed to destroy us and to destroy the work of God. And he lays those traps down with great care. And great patience. Notice here in our text how Sanballat and his cohorts attacked the Jews. If you look down in verse 2, they ask a series of questions in verse 2 and verse 3. And and it it discloses, it it reveals, I think, uh, in a way how Satan sometimes attacks us. Look at this. He attacked their lack of strength. He calls them feeble Jews in verse 2. And then he asks this question. Will they fortify themselves? The word feeble there means withering away like a dying plant. Sanballat's point was that the builders were weak and powerless. And you know what? He was right. But what he didn't understand was that there was was something supernatural at work in Jerusalem. It wasn't the Jews who were getting the wall built. It was God through them. So often the devil plays with our mind and tries to get our eyes off of the Lord and and onto ourselves. And, And let's be honest this morning. In and of ourselves, we are weak. We are powerless. But let's not forget the words of Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sandalit also attacked their lack of faith. The next question he asked was this, will they sacrifice? 
In other words, are these Jews going to turn to God now? It's, it's been over 100 years, actually over 140 years, and he doesn't, hasn't done one thing for them or for this city and, or for this stupid wall. So why in the world do they think he can do something now? The devil loves to get us to doubt God's love for us and his desire to involve himself in our lives. As a matter of fact, if he had his way, he would convince us that God is dead. Or at best, so far removed from us that he might as well be dead. But we know different. Thirdly, he attacked their lack of perseverance. He said, will they make an end in a day? His point was, as he stood there watching what was going on in Jerusalem, these people were working like they were going to get this wall done in a day. When in reality, in his mind, it would probably never get done. So his point was this, you guys might as well just stop now. I mean, this is foolish. You're going to wear yourself out. You'll never get this done. This job is just way too much for you. Listen to me this morning. Whatever you're trying to accomplish in your life spiritually, the devil will do everything he can to try and convince you that it can't be done. God hadn't answered that prayer yet, and it's been how many years? So why keep praying? Why do you keep inviting those people to church? They're never going to come. Just leave it alone. I could go on and on and on and on, but God's got a better word for you than what the devil's saying, and here it is. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Another attack that Sanballat launched was against their limited resources. The final question in verse 2 was this, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Sanballat is referring to all of the, the burned bricks and all of the heaps of debris that had been laying there for well over a century now. And he's questioning how the Jews thought that they could overcome such an overwhelming situation with such limited resources. And again, like Sanballat, the devil loves to whisper in our ears give it up this situation is way bigger than you are this problem is much worse than you could even imagine this relationship is more broken than you know this failure is greater than you can ever overcome Hey, don't listen, church. Do you hear me? Don't listen because the devil is a liar. 
As a matter of fact, John 8 says he's the father of lies. Then look at verse 3. Even that which they build. If a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. This is an attack on their vulnerability. His point was this, so what if they get the wall built? What's the big deal? It's going to be so weak and so flimsy. Even if a little fox goes up, he'll just knock it down. I don't even know why they're trying. Satan's attack on your vulnerability may sound something like this. To you parents, why are you trying so hard to raise godly children? You're just going to lose them to the world anyway. Why are you trying so hard to live for God every day? You can't live that way forever. Why even start reading your Bible and praying? You know that you're not going to stay at it. Why do you even try to make your marriage better? Two months from now, it won't make a bit of difference. He's never going to change. She's just too stubborn. It may sound like this. Are you kidding? Your financial problem is so big, you will never get out of debt. So why try? You with me? Now listen to me this morning. I get it. I get it. These kinds of attacks, whether it's in your life or in my life, can be devastating sometimes. But let me encourage you with some words about how to respond to those kind of mental and emotional and spiritual attacks from Satan. We find it in verses 4 and 5. Respond with prayer. When you encounter, let's read the verses real quick. Hear, O God, for we are despised. And turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Nehemiah didn't try to go toe to toe and and face to face with Sanballat. He knew that at that point, Sanballat and those that were with him were were stronger than they were and more capable than they were and and, and more able than they were. So Sanballat, or excuse me, Nehemiah did what he knew he ought to do, and he just brought them to the Lord. He said, God, you fight this battle for me. You see, whenever we face opposition... And we're trying to go somewhere for God, and we're trying to go forward and make, uh, gain ground and, and, and be better. And that opposition comes. We can do one of several things. We can quit. That is an option. We can just quit. Or 
We can make compromises. Well, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm going a little overboard. Maybe I ought to just chill out a little bit. Maybe I ought to back off a little bit. Maybe every other day reading my Bible, every other day praying. And maybe I ought to ease up on the kids a little bit. Or, or maybe, I, maybe we just need to settle in and accept our marriage for the way it is. That's an option, too. We can make compromises. Or we can pray and keep going. Nehemiah prayed. You'll see that a lot in this book because Nehemiah was a praying man and we covered prayer in the second message. I'm not going to belabor this point, but I do want you to notice here that prayer was Nehemiah's first resort, not his last. Here's the third thing when the devil comes at us. We must remain vigilant. This is so important. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. But look at this. They also set a watch against them day and night because of them. Verse 15, and it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught. In other words, when, when Nehemiah and the others realized that it had finally sunk into Sanballat and his buddies, that their mockery wasn't working, and, and, and their, their attempts to discourage them really weren't being that effective, he said, we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the hobergens, the smaller coats of mail. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which builded on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held his weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded. Well, preacher, what's that all about? It's about this. Though Nehemiah knew that they had turned away the attack of Sanballat, they knew he'd be back. They knew he'd come again. And they weren't going to get caught off guard. They were going to be ready. They were going to be prepared. They had prayed. They had turned it over to God and all of that. But still, they didn't trust the enemy. And church, listen to me this morning. We cannot trust the devil. We can trust the devil to be the devil. We can trust the devil to do what the devil does. And you and I must remain vigilant because the devil is a relentless enemy. And just because he may be turned away today will not mean he won't be back tomorrow or the next day or the next or the next. And that's why Peter says, be sober, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. That means to be serious-minded. That means to understand that we are in a war. We are in spiritual conflict every day. 
And if we want to go forward for God and, and we want to be uh, more for God than we've ever been, then we've got to understand the devil will not let that happen easily. So we must be sober, serious-minded, and we must be vigilant. And here's why. Because our adversary, the devil, is walking around seeking for someone to devour. Satan's looking for a Christian to bring down. He's looking for a marriage to destroy. He's looking for a testimony to destroy, a reputation to destroy. He's looking for a teenager, somebody, a teenage life that he can ruin. That's why we must be vigilant. And that's why we must be prayerful. So realize that every attack will suffer, or every advance will suffer attack. Respond with prayer, remain vigilant. And then I'd encourage you, and this is so important, rely on others. Rely on others. Look at verse 19. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one from another. In what place thereof ye hear the sound of the trumpet? Resort thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. Nehemiah said, if you hear the trumpet, then just drop all of your tools and come running because we'll fight together with the Lord's strength wherever the enemy may attack. And here's my encouragement to you this morning. Don't ever underestimate the importance of building community. God never intends for us to fight our battles alone. That's the beauty of being part of a church family. Having a corporate body of brothers and sisters who give us someone to link arms with and receive strength from and encouragement from. As I understand the Bible, God has five main purposes for us as believers. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism. And you cannot fulfill those purposes on your own. Life is not meant to be a solo act. We were created for community. We're not going to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, but over there in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes a statement in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and the statement is this, two are better than one. And then he gives three reasons for that. Let me give those to you real quick. Number one, he, he says two are better than one because when one falls down, there's someone there to pick him up. At some point, listen, we're all going to fall down in life. 
And what a blessing it is when good and godly friends are there to lift us up and to dust us off and encourage us with supportive words. If you've got somebody like that in your life this morning, praise the Lord. Here's the second reason. Because when one is vulnerable, another is there to make him stronger. We talked earlier about how the devil likes to attack our vulnerabilities. Vulnerability comes when we're weak and when we're tired. It comes when we're alone without any accountability. And we're tempted by things that hold the potential to hurt us. But a friend who stands with us can help us when we're weak. They can provide the accountability and the counsel that that we need to make better decisions. And is there to help us stand against the threatening things of life. Again, if you have somebody like that in your life, be thankful. And two are better than one because two people have the ability to protect each other against the dangers of life better than one person does alone. Having someone who is there who will stand with us and fight for us and be there for us in our time of need, I'm telling you, it is a blessing beyond measure. And Nehemiah said, I know right now we're we're scattered all over the place and we're working, but listen, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, stop what you're doing, run to where, where you need to be, and let's fight together. Let's help each other. Let's encourage one another. Let's stand together. And finally, I would point out the words of Nehemiah 4, 6 and share the last thought with you this morning. Don't quit. Look at the person next to you this morning and say, don't quit. Look at verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. They're halfway finished. For the people had a mind to work. NFL football has a stat that they keep that records how many yards a a runner picks up after the initial contact. In other words, it, it measures the player's ability to keep moving forward toward the goal line after encountering opposition. And you're going to see a lot of that this coming Sunday as you DVR the game because you'll be in church on Sunday night. I promise nobody here will tell you what the score was. Well, they might. But this coming Sunday... There are going to be a lot of running backs who get hit really hard. But they're not going to let that stop them. 
They're, they're, they're not going to quit. They're not going to throw the ball down and say, I'm done. They're not going to throw their hands up in the air and say, well, that's not fair. Because a running back knows that every time he tries to advance the ball, there are going to be 11 other guys trying to stop him from getting where he wants to go. But the best ones just keep moving forward. They just keep churning, headed toward the direction of the goal line. And the truth of the matter is, most running backs score most of their touchdowns after getting hit. Because they know that it's yards after contact that makes the difference between winning and losing. That brings us all the way back to the beginning. Don't worry, we're not going to go through it again. It brings us all the way back to the beginning. Any attempt to move forward for the Lord will be met with opposition. The devil is not going to sit idly by and let you become a better Christian or a better spouse or a better parent or a better leader, or a better servant, or a better giver, or a better church member. Now, if none of those things interest you, and you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, preach, I don't get it. That never happens to me. That's because the devil's not going to kick a sleeping dog. Maybe it's because you haven't shown yourself to be on the wrong team. Listen, if... if if you're not keeping, if you're not bothering the devil, then he's not going to bother you. But if you're interested in becoming better and gaining ground and going forward for God, then I'm just being honest with you, being straight up with you, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. He's going to hit you just like he hit Nehemiah and his friends. And he's going to keep hitting you. And if he can't get you to quit, then he'll get you to make some compromises. He'll get you to slow down. No doubt I'm preaching to someone today who's in a battle. Perhaps your battle right now is to remain disciplined in your daily walk with God. You want to, it's in your heart, you, you want to spend time in His Word every day, you want to spend time in prayer every day, but it's a battle. Yeah, it is. It's a battle for your pastor. It's a battle for your ministry staff. It's a battle every day. Perhaps you're battling for your marriage, for your family. Could be that you're battling in the area of, of finances, or, or maybe you're battling to gain victory over some addictive behavior in your life. Whatever it is, I know this the battle's real. And it's hard. But can I tell you this today? It's worth it. It's worth it. So don't quit. 
stay in the fight. Let's pray.